hope you've been able to grow not just in your understanding of the doctrine of Scripture, but also in your reading of Scripture as well, and not just in terms of quantity, but, but quality and appreciation of the riches of the Word of God. <clears throat> Today we're going to wrap up our discussion, which we began last week, about paragraph 9 on the interpretation and sense of Scripture. And in fact, this lecture is titled The Interpretation and Sense of Holy Scripture, Part 2, because it's just kind of building up on, a, on last week. We didn't really get to the Reformed view of the sense or interpretation of Scripture last week. Rather, as I said, I, I first wanted to show what came before the Reformation in terms of interpretation um, with the hope to help us better understand the Reformation's position when it comes along. I said we could kind of ask several questions. Um, was the Reformation's reading of Scripture a radical break with what came before it? Was there no break at all? Sometimes you see that with certain doctrines. There's no controversy between us and Rome. They're passed along. Was that true of the interpretation of Scripture, or is the answer somewhere in between that, right? Well, understanding what came before the Reformation interpretation helps us to really answer that question. We discussed what is, what is called the quadriga, or the fourfold exegesis of Scripture, which began with the church fathers and really came to its high point, though, in the medieval period. With this fourfold interpretation, there are four different senses of Scripture. You have the literal, and by literal, that can include metaphors or figures of speech, right? You have the allegorical, by which they really mean the same thing we mean by typological, okay? After that, you have the tropological or moral precepts that are drawn from the passage. And then lastly, the anagogical, or what we might, we might call the heavenward sense, the sense in which Scripture speaks about realities yet to come. These are the four senses according to the quadriga. I tried my best to illustrate all four with the example from the life of David, particularly in his slaying of Goliath. I said the literal sense would be that a young Israelite boy from the tribe of Judah several thousand years ago killed a Philistine champion in ancient Israel, the, the who, the what, the when, the where. Uh, Hugh of St. Victor says those are the things to be sought in the historical, literal sense, okay? Next, the allegorical would, of course, be a picture of Christ. Christ is the son of David. He is the ultimate heir of the Davidic covenant, and he defeats the enemies of God decisively on the cross. The tropological sense would be that we, like David, are also soldiers serving our God, we are to trust in our God and not tremble, even though our enemies, Satan, the world, and even our own flesh, be much more powerful than us, because if God be for us, who can be against us? And then lastly, we saw the, the heavenward, the analogical sense, would really point to the final putting away of all of God's enemies. You know, we could look at the text, um, David kills Goliath, but there's still an army of Philistines, Right? We could say in a, some, they're, they're running in terror. Um, Christ defeats the enemies of God decisively, yet they're still allowed to exist for a while until ultimately God puts all of that away in the new heavens and the new earth, okay? In a nutshell, that is the quadriga. After that, and I know I'm kind of doing some review, but it'll be helpful, I think. 
After that, we looked at what I called some kind of myths, or maybe half-myths, about medieval interpretation of Scripture. Namely, and you'll hear this very commonly today, that pre-Reformation interpretation was just, it was bonkers. It had little uh, or any, no attention at all to the literal sense. There, It was just out-of-control allegory. Now, this is only a half-myth, because that is true to some degree. In fact, we read Hugh of St. Victor going off on those who look down on the literal. He says, they want to play the philosopher, right? So that was going on, but bear in mind that that's Hugh of St. Victor who's criticizing them. He is a fellow medieval, um, and so there's a lot of bad exegesis in the medieval period. There's a lot of bad exegesis today, right? In any period of the church, there's a lot of bad interpretation. Um, and yet, nevertheless, leading up to the Reformation, the centuries, there is an increasing emphasis on the literal sense of Scripture, okay? In fact, one author says this. This is kind of a helpful explanation of how this came about. He says, in the history of medieval interpretation, scholars have often stressed that a monastic, meaning monks and monasteries, a monastic emphasis on spiritual exegesis gradually gave way to a more scholastically, meaning school or university, scholastic, scholastically oriented literal exegesis in the 12th and 13th centuries. According to this argument, the Bible was read in monasteries as a means of meditation and spiritual enrichment, where scholasticism developed a more systematic sense of theology and with it, a more historically oriented method of interpreting Scripture. Hugh of St. Victor is often cited as the figure at the crossroads who took this monastic approach to biblical studies while also encouraging a new interest in the literal sense. Now, that's really interesting in one sense, and, and I would say it shows us how complicated history can be. You know, the Reformers often rightly so vehemently criticize those that they call the scholastics or the schoolmen, really the university theologians of, of the, late, uh, the mid to late medieval period. They don't criticize all of them. They'll say some of them are more sober than others. Um, furthermore, they don't reject scholasticism per se as a means of doing theology, but it's very common that they throw the schoolmen under the bus, right? But here we see how complicated of a thing history is. And for this reason, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to remember that often history does not come in nice, little, neat, tidy narratives. Sometimes it does, right? But often it doesn't. Because while the reformers often vehemently criticize the scholastics, it also seems that the growing scholastic emphasis on the literal sense of scriptures was to some degree responsible for the Reformation. In fact, there was a funny little rhyme. I don't know the origins of it. I don't know how old it is, but it kind of gets at the truth of this, okay? It says, if Nicholas of Lyra, remember we talked about him, he was like the Matthew Henry of the medieval period. He wrote a commentary on all of Scripture. He's probably the greatest biblical commentator of the medieval period. It says, if Nicholas of Lyra had not played, Luther could not have danced. And the, 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 it's a pun on Lyra, like a liar, 
okay? If Lyra had not played, Luther could not have danced. What that's getting at is the continuity between late medieval exegesis and the Reformation in terms of the growing emphasis on the literal sense of Scripture, okay? I just say that to say history is complicated. We want to be careful you don't just buy into nice, little, neat, tidy narratives because that's often only one side of the story, okay? All this to say, in the centuries before the Reformation, there's a growing emphasis on the literal sense, prioritizing the literal sense of Scripture. We looked at Hugh of St. Victor, we looked at Thomas Aquinas, and then lastly we read about Nicholas of Lyra, okay? All that being the case, though, nevertheless, as we saw, the Reformers and our own confession denies categorically that there are multiple senses of Scripture. Paragraph 9 says that the sense of any passage, quote, is not manifold, but one. Furthermore, we saw the Reformers reject the quadriga, and they often call it papist, okay? They know what it is, they describe it, and they reject it, sometimes with great hostility. For example, William Perkins in his famous book, The Art of Prophesying on Preaching, not only does he say the quadriga is the position of the Church of Rome, but then he goes on to say, in no uncertain terms, this pattern of fourfold meaning of Scripture must be rejected and destroyed. Scripture has only one sense, the literal one, and, and Perkins is not alone in that. You, you, you find that kind of flavor in how the Reformers re respond to the quadriga, okay? Nevertheless, as I said, all of that needs to be heavily qualified. As Richard Muller says, that with the Reformation, the elements of the medieval quadriga had not utterly disappeared. Instead, they were repositioned by the Reformed within the literal sense. And he goes on to say that with the Reformation, the quadriga, understood as a model imposed by the exegete, is gone. And the letter, the literal, has triumphed. But it is the letter of the larger sense of the text, much as Aquinas had indicated centuries before. So yes, there is a break by the Reformers with medieval exegesis, to be sure, and it's not just purely rhetorical or semantic, okay? However, as we'll see, in some cases, the difference between the Reformers and the medievals is very, very slight. It's not just semantics but it's very, very slight. And in many ways, as I said last week, the reformers can be much more medieval in their interpretation than we are comfortable with being today, particularly in how comfortable they are with typology, okay? Um, so it's, it's complicated, to say the least, and you wanna see the whole picture. All right, that was a, a bit of a long intro, but we do wanna understand the view of the confession of faith there's only one sense of Scripture, the literal. Sometimes it's called the historical or the grammatical. But then you might be wondering, okay, but how can that be true when we know that there is typology in Scripture? If the literal sense of Scripture is the only sense, well, then doesn't that mean that like, typology is not real or maybe it's not grounded in the Scriptures? What does that mean that the sense of Scripture is not manifold but one, okay? 
Well, don't hate me, but to answer that, we have to do a bit of history again, okay? Sorry. Um, <clears throat> but but it's, it's very important to understand this, to understand the reform view. In the centuries leading up to the Reformation, not only was there a greater emphasis on the literal sense of Scripture as a whole, but, and this is very important, there was also a broadening of what was meant by the literal sense itself. Remember, Richard Muller says, the reformers put a greater emphasis on the literal sense or the letter, but it was the letter of the larger sense of the text, much as Aquinas had um, indicated centuries before. Meaning with Aquinas and others, there's a broadening of what is the literal sense, okay? One author explains that in the centuries before the Reformation, quote, there transpired more than a simple increase in the degree of emphasis on literal exegesis. The character of literal exegesis changed as well. There were several reasons for this. First, the intellectual environment in which literal exegesis flourished changed considerably in this period, meaning it went from the monastery to the university, okay? And second, some of the fundamental concepts for understanding scripture were redefined, including the concept of literal, okay? So not only is literal stressed more, but literal itself starts to be understood in broader categories in the centuries before the Reformation. To see this, let's first start with Aquinas again. If you remember, I said, and this is really important, for Aquinas and the Reformers. For Aquinas, the literal sense of Scripture is not just what the words mean, nor is it just what the human author intends. Ultimately, the literal sense is what the divine author intends, okay? He says, since the literal is that which the author intends, and since the, whole, the author of Holy Scripture is God, who by one act comprehends all things by his intellect, it is not unfitting, as Augustine says, if even according to the literal sense, one word in Holy Scripture should have several senses. Now, it's, it's interesting, when it comes to reading Aquinas, I found myself a little bit confused. On the one hand, for Aquinas, it's almost as if you wonder, are the other senses in the literal sense? very similar to the Protestant view, with the only difference that he still calls them senses. I think some Protestants read him that way. We'll see William Whitaker will kind of say, say as much to another degree. In fact, one modern Romanist today, uh, uh, a Romanist uh, historian or theologian, he says that for Thomas, the contents of the spiritual senses do not extend beyond the literal sense. So it's almost as if the literal contains it all, but they're still called senses, okay? Or it could be that Thomas gets just about as close to putting the other senses within the literal sense as one can get without actually doing it. Perhaps we might say that for Thomas, instead of just merely grounding the other senses in the literal, it's almost like they're anticipated in the literal. If they're not there, it's much stronger than just they follow from it. Okay, there's a really close connection. We see this in two ways. First, we see it in how Thomas describes the literal sense, sense as that which the Spirit intends. This leads to the question, which William Whitaker will basically ask, 
Well, if the other senses are intended by the Spirit, and the Spirit intimates that they are, and the literal sense is that which the Spirit intends, if you're going to define the literal sense that way, aren't all the other senses part of the literal sense, basically? That's what William Whitaker is kind of going to argue. Secondly, the language that Thomas uses to describe the connection between uh, the literal and the other senses is really strong. For example, while he allows that Scripture has several senses, he says that it is according to the literal sense that you have other senses. Again, it's not like just that they logically follow. It's almost like they're anticipated in the literal if they're not there, okay? It's really close. For Tom, Well, that's Thomas. We'll come back to him and particularly how the Protestants interact with him. But just note, note for him, the literal sense is that which the Spirit intends, which is something the Protestants really approve of. They really like that part of Thomas when he talks about Scripture, okay? Next, the next person to broaden the literal meaning even more was Nicholas of Lyra, the famous medieval commentator. Nicholas of Lyra was born four years before Thomas died, but he's really like <coughs> a product of the next century, but he really develops this even more. For Lyra, in some cases, not all, some people speak about it like this was across the board, but it's only in some cases. But in some cases, Nicholas of Lyra says there is a double literal sense. A double literal sense. Now you're getting really close to the Protestant view. For example, in his second prologue to his commentary, uh, and for this I want to say I'm indebted to the translation of a man named uh, James Keeker. He translated all this. This is the only place I could find a translation of this. Um, but it's very good. In his second prologue, though, listen to what he says. On the one hand, he gives a very traditional affirmation of the quadriga. In fact, it's from Nicholas of Lyra that we have passed down to us that little Latin ditty and that rhyme I shared with you, right? Uh, and litera, gesta, docet, all that stuff. We get that from Nicholas of Lyra. But then he goes on to say this. The literal and the spiritual senses, quote, can also be explained differently so that it is directed just as much toward the literal sense as the other. He says, concerning this, it must be considered that sometimes the same word has a double literal sense. He points to 1 Chronicles 17, where God makes the Davidic covenant with David and says concerning David's heir, I will be his father and he shall be my son. Nicholas says, this is understood of Solomon, literally, insofar as he was the son of God by adoption in his youth, meaning Solomon was the heir of the Davidic covenant. Yet, he says, this passage, I will be to him a father, is introduced by the apostle in Hebrews chapter 1 as spoken about Christ, literally. So, he explains this passage was fulfilled literally in Solomon, nevertheless less perfectly, because he was the son of God by grace alone. On the other hand, it was fulfilled more perfectly in Christ, who is the son of God by nature. Though, however, each interpretation may be simply literal, the second one, which is about Christ, is accordingly spiritual and mystical, insofar as Solomon was a type of Christ. That's huge, 
right? Because he basically just put the spiritual and the mystical within the literal very clearly. There's a double literal sense. You can see why maybe someone would say, if Lyra hadn't played, Luther could not have danced, right? You're, you're seeing this broadening happen. All this to say, the Reformed claim that there's only one literal sense and that even typology is to be understood in that terms of the literal sense, that didn't drop out of nowhere. In many ways, it was anticipated and brought about by centuries of thought beforehand. Well, having said that, let's now finally get to the Reformed view. First, the Reformed think that at, it's at best unhelpful and at worst very foolish to say that there are multiple senses of one scripture. Okay, they're just like, no, nah, let's, not, let's not do that. That's muddying the waters. For example, William Whitaker, and that's interesting because Whitaker like, really likes Thomas on this, but listen to what he says. The sense of Scripture, therefore, is but one, the literal. For it is folly to feign many senses, merely because many things follow from the words of Scripture rightly understood. Those things may indeed be called corollaries or consequences flowing from the right understanding of the words, but new and different senses, they are by no means. So different senses? No, that, that just muddies the water. Do many things follow from one text of Scripture at times? Yes, but let's not call them senses. He calls them corollaries, consequences. Elsewhere, he calls them applications and accommodations, or Turretin calls them conceptions of one and the same sense. So there is a multiplicity at times in the text of Scripture in the literal sense, but it's not a multiplicity of different senses. Now, why is that? Well, the Reformed give many reasons, but I'd say the main one I would point out is how the literal sense is defined. <clears throat> As I said, the Reformed really like, they don't like everything Thomas says on, on interpretation, but if there's one thing they really agree with him on, it's that the literal sense of Scripture is that which the Spirit intends. Turretin, for example, quotes Thomas on that, and he says this is, this is correct. Johannes Heidegger says the sense of Scripture is singular from the mind of the author himself, the Holy Spirit intended by God, its author. Or another lesser-known reform guy says the true sense of Scripture is that which agrees with the mind of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what William Whitaker says concerning all of this. Speaking of the one literal sense, he says this, and you're kind of like, okay, maybe that's a really generous reading of Thomas. I'm not sure. He says, Thomas Aquinas himself seems to have seen this. And he quotes Thomas where Thomas says the literal sense is that which the Spirit intends. But then he says this, since then, that is the sense of Scripture and the literal sense which the Holy Spirit intends. Certainly, if the Holy Spirit intended the tropological, anagogical, or allegorical sense of any, these senses are not different from the literal. And then he says, as Thomas has expressly taught us, right? I don't know that Thomas does expressly teach that, but he really, he's, that's a very generous reading, okay? And it's probably not too far off. So with Whitaker and the Reformed, uh, they, they do not reject the quadriga entirely. Rather, they refine it. They reorganize it, and thereby they give it greater clarity, okay? One author says this of Whitaker. 
Whitaker found the hermeneutical position of Aquinas to be quite close to that of the Reformed tradition and assented to it with only minor reservations. Whitaker agrees that the things signified by words can also have a further spiritual signification as allegory, etc. But given their basis in the literal sense, he argues that these spiritual interpretations should not be called senses, which implies something separate from the literal sense. I think that's right. I think that's right on. Aquinas argues that just because there are multiple senses, this doesn't lead to confusion because they're all intended by God. But the reformers don't really buy that. And you find they often kind of respond, maybe not saying, like quoting him specifically, but they often have an answer to that kind of argument. William Ames, for example, is very typical of the reformed on this. He says there's only one sense of one place of scripture because otherwise the sense of scripture would not only not be clear and certain, but have no sense at all. For that which does not signify one thing signifies nothing with certainty. I think that's true. I think personally, this is why as I read Thomas, sometimes I'm like, maybe those other senses are in the literal, or maybe they're not. But if you just take away the word sense from the others, you're like, oh, okay, that makes more sense. Because, <laughs> no pun intended. Because by adding the word sense, it makes them sound separate from the literal, which they shouldn't be if they're in it, right? So the, the reform position is clarifying. Nevertheless, though there aren't multiple senses, there's still a multiplicity of the sense of Scripture at times, particularly with type and anti-type. Turretin says, the sense of Scripture may be twofold, either simple or compound. Or sometimes he'll say simple or composite. The sense of Scripture is simple when it has no further signification. Okay? It, what's the deep meaning of this, what it says? That it, there's no, nothing further to be gathered than what it says itself. Okay? Even the medievals and the fathers acknowledge that not every text has an allegorical, tropological, and anagogical meaning. Some things just have no further signification. So also for the reform, some texts are just simple. Turretin says, simple and historical is that which contains the declaration of one thing without any other signification, such as precepts, doctrines, and histories. Precepts, doctrines, and histories. So precepts or commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. There's nothing allegorical about that, okay? There's nothing anagogical about that. It's tropological, but that's the sense of the text. It's a command, right? It, it's straightforward. Doctrines. These two are simple. Romans 4, 4 through 5. Now to one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is his due? But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. No further signification. Application, to be sure, in a lot of ways, but there's not like an allegorical meaning behind that. It's, it's simple. Lastly, Turretin mentions history. Now, with history, you are going to have probably more typology in it, but that doesn't mean that everything recorded in history has some kind of allegorical significance, particularly when you get to the New Testament, okay? However, 
Turretin also says that sometimes the literal sense can be compound or composite. And in fact, when our confession speaks of the full sense of Scripture, it's, it's talking about this really broader sense, okay? He says the composite or mixed sense is in prophecies as types, part of which is in the type, part in the antitype. But then he says, this does not establish two senses, okay? But two parts of one in the same sense intended by the Spirit who with the letter considers the mystery. Think of that for a moment. He just said something really deep. And when I like, read that, I was like, whoa, that was really deep. He says, with the letter, the Spirit considers the mystery. With the type, the Spirit considers the antitype. These are all considered and one part of the whole intention of the Spirit. He says, as in that prophecy, ye shall not break a bone thereof, Exodus 12. The full sense, notice that word full, that's in our confession. The full sense is not obtained unless the truth of the type or Passover lamb is joined with the truth of the antitype or Christ, right? This is why, why, you know, Christ can say, if, if you read the whole scriptures, but you don't see me, you're misunderstanding because the spirit intended both of them. And there's a sense in which you, if you're not understanding Christ by faith or seeing him by faith, you're not understanding the Old Testament because the intention of the Spirit goes beyond just the type, right? Another Reformed writer says, the meaning of any passage is always single. However, in the Old Testament, the meaning of prophecies is often composite. For example, Hosea 11 is composite in these words. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Literally and historically, the words are to be understood of the Hebrew people from Egypt, typically and mystically of the call of Christ from Egypt. So types and their antitypes are definitely there. There's a multiplicity. There's a twofoldness in the one sense, but they are one sense of a whole, one composite uh, or mixed sense, right? <clears throat> that, in a nutshell is the Reformed view. We could definitely say more, but we do want to wrap up this chapter today. What I'd like us to do now is think about these things a bit more and do a bit of application, okay? Particularly, I want us to ask here, how does our own, and maybe we can speak of our own circles more, our own like confessionally Reformed, we could think broader too, but how does our own exegesis compare with that of our Reformed forebears? Have we gotten away from it? Are we doing just fine, or is there something in between? I think there are three things, three historical developments we must keep in mind, things that took place between the time of our confession and today, and yet which can still have a huge impact, even if we don't realize it's in the background. The first historical development was the rise of what's called the historical critical method of exegesis. The historical critical method of exegesis. This kind of exegesis treats the Bible as though it were any other book. And it seeks to, uh, in particular, to understand the mind of the author, but it's the human author, not the divine, if there even is a divine author for people who hold this view. The Bible is not inspired. 
Words signify things, but they deny that some of those things signify other things. Or if they do, that's really what the human author thought. It was like his fancy or his meditation or something. With this view, the Bible is not a unified whole, but rather what one author is saying may be very different from what another is saying. I remember I talked to a guy once who was kind of going on this path, and I said, the way he was talking, and I, he led me to say, are you saying the apostles had different conceptions of the gospel? Um, by which I meant not just that like when Paul says something, you're like, oh, that's something Paul would say. And when John says something, you're like, that sounds like John. But do you mean they have almost like different gospels? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I don't think I, I have a problem with that necessarily. <laughs> uh, okay, well, you just kind of denied the inspiration of Scripture because you're saying there's no divine author, really. He wouldn't go that far, but it, it, that's the pressure of historical critical method, okay? While people in our circles are not going to really hold this, or even an evangelicalism at large, Yet that view exerts a great deal of pressure, even on those who tend to be confessionally reformed. If I could give another example of how it exerts pressure, I would say it's very similar to the theory of evolution, okay? I went to a seminary that believed in a historical Adam. They drew the line with Adam. Adam was not a descendant from millions of years of an ape that God finally gave a soul. They wouldn't say that with Adam. They were fine with saying that of other animals, though. And you might go, well, you need to question your, your methodology then. Um, but it's because of the pressure. One professor said, I don't like to be out of step with science. And I guess I understand that. But you can see the pressure exerting itself. Similarly, with the historical critical method, it really has pressure, even on the confessionally reformed, where at times they might be skittish, maybe even embarrassed to preach or write on typology unless it's explicitly mentioned by a New Testament author. Quite frankly, we need to push back against this. It is in this way, which I said, the reformers themselves are much more medieval and comfortable with typology than we are today because we live after several things. They have they have far fewer hang-ups on this than we do. In fact, it's interesting. I've heard this said. I have read this said. Maybe you have heard this. It's something of a modern truism that Charles Spurgeon, though a great preacher, often had a little too much fun with allegory. Has anyone ever heard that? Have you heard that? Okay. Some people will say that from time to time. This is like a truism everyone believes today. As I read Spurgeon, I don't really think that's the case. I think rather church, uh, Spurgeon is truly the last Puritan in the sense that his exegesis is steeped in the Puritans, but to his own day, that seems like crazy allegorizing. In fact, uh, Corey Smith, he's, he pastors uh, Heritage Baptist Church in Shreveport. He's the current moderator for CBA. He's doing a PhD on this to prove that Spurgeon's not really allegorizing like crazy, or at least if you're going to say that of Spurgeon, you have to say that of the Puritans and the Reformed as well. Um, it's, it's just that he lives beyond their type and he's steeped in their readings. I think we need to push back on that. I think that's something we should grow in to say, like, why am I uncomfortable with this? And is it just because of this, like, historical critical method? Like, who cares about them? They don't even believe the Bible's inspired, right? 
The second, another big historical development, which we need to take into account today, is what I would call the dominance of biblical theology over systematic theology. Now you might go, what's the difference? Biblical theology is like, I just want to, you'll see it'll, it'll say like a theology of John, a theology of Paul, a theology of this and that, and it's not a connected, united, systematic whole. It's very postmodern in, in that sense, right? It's the particulars, not the universals in, in many, many ways. You find in a lot of evangelical seminaries in the world, there's a skittishness, sometimes even a mocking of doctrinal or moral conclusions from Scripture, let alone types and allegory. That's almost seen as not the job of the exegete. That's those systematicians' job. That's the preacher's job. It's not my job, right? It's almost ridiculous. I remember in my undergrad in an Old Testament class, we were discussing the various sacrifices in Leviticus. And I asked the professor, who was a Calvinistic Baptist who held to the inspiration of Scripture, I said, in what ways were the sins forgiven in the Old Testament? Because the priest says, you shall or the, God says to the priest, you shall tell them their sins are atoned for. But in Hebrews, it says the blood of bulls and goats does not atone for sin. So what does that mean? And the professor kind of chuckled and looked at me like I was a fundamentalist or something. And he said, oh, I don't think the author of Hebrews or author of Leviticus is lying. And I was like, yeah, I don't think he is either, but that's not the point. And he, he went on to explain like those kinds of doctrinal hair-splitting questions that's, that's for the systematicians. It's kind of silly. Um, that, that kind of attitude is very strong out there today, and it pervades a lot of commentaries, even Reformed commentaries. I would say, while there are many helpful modern commentaries, a lot of, and there are very helpful and enlightening works of biblical theology, typically today, um, commentaries shy away from any kind of doctrinal statement or very much any kind of doctrinal exposition, much less moral application. But that is just not how the scriptures have been interpreted by the church throughout history, and it doesn't take the word of scripture itself seriously. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy uh, 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, Rebuke, or reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. This is why I have loved Andrew Willett's commentaries so much, which we'll talk more about in a second. But for every chapter he expounds, there's a section in which he covers doctrines that are taught in the passage and moral matters to be observed. You know what's funny about Andrew Willett that I've learned even more about? His commentaries in their format are really, really medieval. It's like a medieval commentary written by a reformed guy. For example, let me explain. They're called hexaplas or, or a six-sided commentary. And really, 
he has six sections for each chapter. First, he establishes the text itself and compares different versions, which in and of itself is interesting for the matter of textual criticism and how that was done back then, right? Next, he establishes the different sections of each chapter passage. You might not know that, but this was considered the first step in medieval exegesis. One author says, according to the 14th century university regulations, the cursor biblicus, the one who would be like a, maybe not a professor, but like, like an intern, like a student teacher guy, what are they, a TA or something, their first job should be to give special attention to divisions of the text before treating the text verse by verse and then discuss any questions that might arise from it. So Willett gives the divisions of the text, then guess what he does? He has a section called questions. The question, or the quaestio, quaestiones, the same author says, became the basic scholastic exercise originating in reading the Bible as a school text or in a university setting. That's what Willett does, and he, that's like always the longest section, but they're really helpful. After this, Willett has a section on doctrines to be believed and then on morals to be observed, which is medieval, but it's also reformed. Doctrines and morals, faith and life, those are the two main parts of application. William Perkins says that, faith and life, so it makes sense he'd have doctrines and morals. And then lastly, he has a section on controversies, which is often dealing with Rome or Socinians, right? Overall, though, his commentaries, at least in their format, are very medieval, but Andrew Willett was one of the most respected Reformed commentators in his day, and I really think we need to get back to this kind of a model of commentary. Um, we don't want to throw away everything that came. There have been advancements, right? Typically, our, our understanding of the original languages is better today than it was by the Reformers. The reformers will make etymological fallacies, right? That we've learned, yeah, we shouldn't do that. There's also some really good stuff that comes out of biblical theology, right? But we also want to kind of get back to this deeper meditation on Scripture as well. And I would say when I preach through a book, I typically have three kinds of commentary. I have more than three, but three kinds that I'm looking for. I'll typically have a very technical commentary that deals with syntax and etymology and thought analysis and stuff like that. I'll have a very big picture biblical theology, and then everything else is mostly just older guys like Andrew Willett. Because you, there, there have been advancements, but we want to bring back some of that other stuff, and I think we should really start writing commentaries that way more today, okay? Lastly, the big historical development, the, one of the big ones, is dispensationalism with its historical grammatical hermeneutic. Again, the mind of the author comes into play, but it's, it's kind of the main thing. Or really, we might say that the divine intent goes no further, really, than the human author's intent. With, with dispensationalism. Now, dispensationalism is changing very radically faster than you can even keep track on. I kind of think, and maybe this, this will not come true, I kind of think it's dying out because it's really accepting more of a reformed, older 
hermeneutic, right? But as I've encountered it, what like a MacArthur would hold to, those kinds of more traditional dispensationalists, it's really the mind of the author, but the human author, okay? I would say I don't intend here a complete criticism of dispensationalism, but I would say my, my suggestions are really at Reformed folks who typically come out of dispensationalism. I came out of dispensationalism. Raise your hand if you came out of dispensationalism, right? Almost all of us did, especially if you're a Baptist. That means, and I, I have two things in mind. There's one thing that we shouldn't do anymore. We should get away from. And there's one thing that's an overreaction against dispensationalism. Let me explain what I mean. The first thing is this. The Reformed typically make a distinction between the translation of a passage and the interpretation. The translation is the syntax, the word order, the etymologies. The interpretation is arriving at the intent of the Holy Spirit. I would say for dispensationalism, translation is interpretation. And to some degree, translation is preaching. This is why it's, it's so e I did this the other night. I asked my mom if her pastor went to master's, and she said yes. You can spot a dispensationalist preacher because they love to give you etymologies. They love to explain grammatical syntax to you and, and things like that, which is not bad. That has its place, right? But typically that's seen as kind of not only the goal of interpretation, but preaching. I remember one time I preached my heart out on Romans 8, right? I just like, whoa, I gave it everything I had when I was in seminary. And I, I asked this gal what she thought. It was in a dispensational church. And she said to me, it was very good, but I, don't, I didn't feel like you went deep enough into the text. And I was really puzzled by what she meant by that. What I think she meant by that is you didn't give me the etymologies of words. You didn't tell me the, the tense of this word here, right? Now, some, it's necessary sometimes to explain those things if it's necessary, but if it's not, you don't have to. That's not what it necessarily means to go deeper into the text. Like I said, for dispensationalism, that's not just the interpretation, that's often the preaching. It's almost just like translation. I think today, as those shaking off dispensationalism, we still need to get away from that. Sometimes etymologies are helpful, case order, all that stuff is helpful, but only if it's necessary. We have to remember that that part especially is going to be done in the study. Really what's going to come out in the sermon is the second task of understanding the intention of the Spirit, okay? The other thing I think we need to deal with with, with dispensationalism is an overreaction against dispensationalism. What I mean by this is um, if you're no longer dispensational, right, you've learned to come to an older hermeneutic and you have really appreciated particularly having Christ preach to you from the Old Testament. Not just getting the law, but the gospel from the Old Testament. And, and rightly so. That's a beautiful thing, right? This kind of relates to the, the Matt Chandler thing, you're not David, Right? I have talked to a lot of guys, though, who, who learned that, learned to, to preach Christ from the Old Testament, who 
want to get away from merely moralizing the text, the problem is some guys don't moralize the text at all. Or there's almost a view, I've talked to some other young guys about this my age, that if you draw moral conclusions from an Old Testament passage in addition to like a Christological conclusion, mm, that's you're mixing law and gospel. <laughs> and it's like, no, <laughs> that's not the case. Um, there may be law and gospel in the passage, and acknowledging them both is not the same thing as confusing law and gospel. Remember, we preach both law and gospel. We don't confuse them, nor do we confuse the different uses of the law, but we do preach law and gospel. And you have to be careful that you don't go too far one way or the other. I have seen churches where their souls are starving for gospel because all they get is law in terms of application from sermons. But if you just go the other way and look down upon any kind of tropological application, moral application, you're going to start to see some other issues cropping up, maybe of a different nature within that church as well. We need both, and that's not to confuse law and gospel. So part of my, my conclusion to those guys would be, I'm glad we've recovered the, the Christological meaning here, the typological meaning, but there is a sense too in which you are David, okay? In fact, William Whitaker says this, David fought Goliath. David was a type of Christ and Goliath of the devil. Therefore, this fight and victory of David may be typically accommodated to denote the combat of Christ with Satan in his victory. Then he says, David overcame Goliath. So ought we to overcome our passions, which wage a kind of giant war within us against the Spirit of God. That is common in Reformed interpretation and preaching as well, and we don't want to throw that away either, okay? All right, that was a lot. I know that was, that was a whole heck of a lot. <laughs> any questions <laughs> or any other thoughts or anything you'd like to share at this point? Remember, we do believe in the literal sense of Scripture, but I think so often today, even by some reform guys, when they say literal, it's a very narrow literal and not the broader literal of the reform confessions and, and the reformers in general, okay? I would also say if you're interested, there are a lot of other really practical tips about how to study Scripture we didn't have time to go into, um, William Whitaker has a lot of these. Um, this is a lot of good stuff in the medievals as well, Augustine. They'll talk about prayer before Scripture. Scripture memorization by the mem medievals was almost seen as if you're not memorizing the passage, how do you expect to understand it? So there's a lot of spiritual disciplines that go along with properly understanding Scripture, which we could benefit from today. And if you're interested in that, I can kind of send you some of that stuff later. Um, but that's it for now.